All right, welcome back to another installment of the Gopher Coffee Shop Podcast. I'm Ryan Miller. And I'm Brad Carlson. And Brad, today we, uh, we've got with us uh, special guest Lisa Bankin. Good morning, good morning. And uh, uh, today, I guess uh, one, of the, one of the reasons to, to put Lisa on today is that uh, she's recently retired from the organization in her, her most recent uh, full-time role, I guess, and uh, as a crops educator, member of the crops team. Um, and so she, uh, we want to get a little chance to kind of visit, uh, get a little career retrospective, uh, and talk about some things. Hopefully, in the future, in the summertime, we'll be able to talk again about technical information that uh, that she's so in tune with. But uh, yeah, you know, it's been it's been kind of odd uh, with all the COVID stuff uh, over the last year and a half. Uh, we've had a number of uh, new employees that's been difficult to to kind of get uh, plugged into our teams and, and our work activities with a lot of the travel things and and meeting restrictions and that but likewise uh, the uh, Lisa you retired during that time and it's been difficult for us to to get together and do this because uh, likewise we just haven't been having a lot of uh, in-person meetings where we could just uh, get together and talk no it's been really limited and that's the downside when you you know when I opted to retire at the end of December of this past year uh, basically no gatherings, um, no indoor of any kind, and even outdoor. You know, we talked about the opportunity of an outdoor gathering this summer, and really that didn't and couldn't happen either. So, um, you know, there's kind of that missed time where you can uh, meet new people as well as say goodbye. Uh, but I also know there are a number of other folks who have retired and are continuing to retire during this time, and it's it's kind of a quiet send-off because we're not sure who, when, what, and, and you're not able to, you know, just visit and have those good times. Well, and then, you know, I think we'll talk about, uh, you're having a little bit of a soft retirement anyway. True, yeah, true. Yeah. So we're going to still be seeing you around some. Yeah, that's, which has been nice because Lisa's kind of uh, uh, made some, some time to make sure that the, the project that she's been so integral over the past uh, couple of decades, I guess, uh, uh, to make sure that project kind of continues and so she's been uh, working with myself this summer to to do some of those applied mm -hmm. sort of research and demonstration projects and kind of culminate those uh, into some resources for for the programming that we do throughout the year and so it's it's been really nice to continue to work with lisa because without that we would have would it's have evaporated make, yep, right it's, so it's hard to make those transitions and you want some things to change and move forward uh, but again with all the limitations we've had um, I just view it as a, an opportunity to, to help make transitions but we still don't know where the future is going to go with it yep yep so but it's been I've really it's I've appreciated a lot this this uh, this summer in the past year even with all the things that we've been working through so uh, kind of transitioning though if we think back uh, a little bit here uh, when I started with Extension, I actually started with uh, three crops educators. It was right after a major reorganization of the, the Extension in Minnesota, uh, as we know it. Uh, we went uh, uh, into a different system where we, they, they had some regional educators, some educators that were uh, functioning at, in various uh, capacities, I guess, uh, for local units of government within counties or two counties. They were 
doing work that was uh, important for those counties on a on the, you know for them basically. Right. Uh, and so when I when I started with extension, it was right after that reorganization, and uh, uh, there were a few uh, regional educators. And Lisa, actually, uh, you were uh, instrumental. I, I think you were the chair of the the hiring mm -hmm. committee, mm -hmm. uh, and yep. you you ended up. Uh, well, I guess the the ultimate decision was with the the associate dean. But as far as the committee, you ended up kind of picking or putting forward uh, myself, uh, Liz Stahl. And Dave Nikolai is uh, uh, potentials for for these roles as kind of crops educators to f help fill out the uh, uh, the crops team. So, pretty uh, good hires. We're almost 20 years on, and you're I all know. three still here. You know, and it was a unique opportunity. They really didn't do that. I mean, you didn't have a hiring committee to hire multiple people. It was typically a you know one person that you were after. The other unique part is the team was not just in house. Uh, we were able to include on that hiring committee um, some folks from industry as well as uh, consultants. So we put a, a real interesting or, or a very nice cross-section together for the hiring team because looking for three people to fill crops educators as regional educators and then going into three different locations. So, uh, yeah, I do feel pretty good about bringing on three people, and they are all still very good educators for the state. Yeah. yeah, it's been a it's been a fun time too, and actually, I'd that uh, congratulate you on that whole process. I don't think I ever I ever really uh, reflected much upon it, but uh, as far as a, a hiring experience and and what can be a pretty stressful time, that was actually, I mean, I I don't know if you call it enjoyable. That <laughs> seems a little weird, but yeah, it, it was yes. actually a pretty good experience. Uh, uh, that process that uh, was created with some of the the seminar and the interviewing things that we had to do. Uh, it actually that uh, that would be a good model uh, for future too. I think. Oh, I think so. We, you know, when you look at the three of you, you know, Dave Nikolai came on with a lot of experience. Uh, Liz, we knew from industry, and I had crossed paths with her several times. In fact, I even called her up and asked her to interview. I suggested she might apply for that, not knowing where she was in her career, but that was kind of a cross paths. And then, of course, Ryan, you were just finishing up with your master's degree and kind of not necessarily fresh out of college, but fairly fresh comparatively. So we brought in different levels of expertise, experience, and I, I think that's also what made it pretty strong, is it wasn't just a one spot, one fit, we could only hire this. We brought in good experience and folks that, as I said, I've been, it's been really exciting to watch you guys grow in your careers. And it, it's been fun working with everyone. So mm -hmm. uh, if we uh, take a step back then maybe and, and think a little bit about uh, when you started with mm -hmm. Extension, though. So, so leading up to that uh, hiring committee that you worked on, uh, we can chat over the course of this podcast about some of the people you mentored and things like that. But if we look back at when you started with Extension, uh, probably a, a real kind of notable thing here is you were actually the first uh, uh, female hired right. into the role is at that time would have been the egg agent Correct. At, in extension. So handling uh, multiple disciplines. Mm -hmm. uh, I think all egg agents at that point were, would have been based out of a, a county office typically. Correct. Correct. There were some regional, they call them district 
folks. There were a few district folks that, uh, like Marlon Johnson, Carlisle, Holen, they had a few district positions and they were very specialized in what they did and they, they would cover a larger area. But almost everybody, you're right, was hired at the county level. And you would have your, your ag agent, you had a 4-H agent, and you had a home economist at that time. And the unique thing when I was hired is um, they had several counties that were larger in size, had a little broader agriculture that they were starting to introduce kind of hiring two ag agents, one focusing on livestock, one focusing on crops, or kind of dividing up some of those responsibilities. Um, because just the nature of those counties, and I know Clay County did that, and Becker, the county that I was hired in. So we were, at the same time, had moved into this four-county agent concept. Hmm. Interesting. And uh, I do remember, this is kind of going to be a little funny story, I think. Uh, you, you don't care for hot dogs, and why? Why? Why would that? Why would that be? Yeah. Well, you know, I um I did start right out of college, so I graduated in June of 1980, and I had been hired, and I moved up to Becker County, um, and started July of 1980, and so I, I basically graduated two weeks later, moved up, and um and got started, and you know, right out of college, I had very like no money. I was totally broke. I was trying to move into an apartment, get set up, and so the co-workers that were in Becker County thought it would be a good way for me to get to know everybody would be to go on 4-H club tours. So this was very popular in the past that you would go to all the clubs and see what the kids were working on. The county fair was in August, so in this case July was just full of over 30 club tours. And in their wisdom they said, well we'll just put Lisa on just about every one of those tours. So I, I went around the county, got to know people, but one of the things they did at these tours, of course, was to have food at the end of the tour, and they all liked hot dogs. And I was, I was broke, so there was food, and it was hot dogs, but I really do hate hot dogs now, because I ate them for about 30 days straight. <laughs> and that was the primary. Yes, and they probably, the, they probably were the cheap kind, and too, I, w- I would guess. And they were! boiled in water, and when yeah. you pick it up, they break in half, and yeah. you don't know what they're made of. Yeah. But yeah. the banks would give them some funds to the 4-H club so they could cook, and sure enough, yeah. hot dogs were one of them. But I do not care for hot dogs. <laughs> so now we know that the 30-day... Thirty-day threshold is uh, is the threshold oh, yeah. for burnout on uh, absolutely eating cheap hot dogs. So. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so so Lisa, extension changed has, has changed so much in that period of time. Yeah. What what were your primary job responsibilities if you go back to that that early part of your career? Yeah, you know, um, I was hired in as the ag, you know, in the crops area and very greenhorn. You know, I did grow up on a dairy farm. My dad was pretty instrumental in helping me pick to stay in the ag field going into an agronomy background um, you know so he was he was a big support and when you start they didn't fully know what to do with me either if I can put it that way I mean number one it was like you're a woman number two what jobs can we do um, where should we really stick you so that was part of going to the 4-H clubs we go here's an easy one 4-H is busy um, they tied me into the county fair um, but I think at that time, all extension folks really did help with the county fair. So you, you come into summer, you're doing that, you move into the fair. So they had me lined up with several key projects. I worked with a lot of the livestock projects, the 4-H, the horticulture, anything that was crop and bug related. So I got to give leadership to that. Um, helping with ag programs was a very slow process because they weren't sure which ones to do. Uh, but you just gradually 
kind of worked into it. Horticulture, a given. I got every hort question, every bug, every spider, anything that moved crawl, bats, whatever it was, um, had me work with those. So I think I got, I don't want to say the leftovers, but I got a lot of the, oh, here's a good one for you to do because somebody needs to take care of this. And then gradually, I had some farmers that were on the extension committee that hired me, and they were very helpful in that. Um, they said, let's, let's set up some research plots, some field demonstration plots, so we can have some field days, so people get to know who you are. We can pull in some specialists, have some field days. And it kind of grew from there, Brad. It was like, you know, you, you got thrown into every job that no one else, I won't say no one else wanted to do, but they needed extra help. And then I gradually had to grow that program from yeah, there. Well, it's, it's sort of, I mean, I started about a decade later. Um, you know, for a lot of us, we, we kind of, when in those old county positions, you kind of created your own, mm-hmm. um, your, your own programming based on the needs and the interests of the county. But it takes time to develop that. So, well, when you start, you got to do something. So, well, here's a bunch of stuff. Here's, right. here's what the last person did. Or here's the things that piled up while no one was here. Yeah, so that, so there is that, yeah. And they would, it took about three years or so, you know, yeah. just to kind of work through the seasons. Yeah. And, and then I realized, oh, there's a crop improvement association. Right. And there's a dairy, you know, association. And there's this group. And there's you know, potential for a forage council. And, and it just, it, it always morphs and changes as you meet more people and you think about what's out there and what you could possibly help with. Looking forward and kind of anticipating some of the, the needs and, and where, you, where you might fit and serve a role to kind of help, help folks out with, with some of what the university can provide in terms of resources. So it's, it's been interesting to kind of hear about some of, some of that kind of historical stuff and we can certainly get into some of the more more recent or modern things yeah. that you've been an uh, integral part of but uh, anything else you want to mention with that? Well the one thing that got started then too is the field school and the whole idea of crop consultants and crop scouting. University of Minnesota Extension really initiated that and I was able to attend that and participate. Um, they were very good at training. We put, took in a lot of trainings but that was a two-week school that I took part in on field scouting working with PEST IPM. And by having that opportunity and then going back and working with farmers, I was armed with a lot more information and I, you know, it really helped get out into the fields. I started walking fields with farmers. I would go out with the co-op and see herbicide injury or armyworm outbreaks. We had sunflower pests. And so you could start to go into the field and actually meet with people and you know help them at that stage and every time you build that level of confidence then they would invite you out you could do a field day uh, work with state specialists on you know an insecticide trial what that might be and I looked for those kinds of opportunities because I knew it would help open the door for education and for what the university's resources were. So Lisa kind of a, a funny story I guess one of the first times I didn't know you or meet you at the time but uh uh, one of my first uh, memories of Lisa was at one of the egg professional field schools. And I can't remember if I, I was taking in the session or uh, I was working with the extension team at that point and, and uh, working on a, a master's degree or whatever. Uh, but uh, uh, you showed up uh, with a van, I believe, from Olmstead County, and you had a bunch of interns with you. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So that was one of my first uh, memories. And again, I didn't know you at the point. I didn't really have any <laughs> connections to Olmstead County or your group or anything like that. But I, I do remember you showing up and working with uh, this younger generation of uh, mm -hmm. of students in in that kind of probably in an intern role, working for with you and mm -hmm. probably Fritz at that point. Yep. And yep. And uh, uh, kind of having them have that experience at field school with you. So I, I, that's one of my first memories, mm -hmm. seeing you kind of study and work with them. And, and that's, that was kind of, I don't know, just an aside, I guess. Well, well Fr and Fritz kind of had some stuff going on before you, uh, you moved yep. down to Southeast Minnesota. But I, I remember uh, we had some gra a, a larger grant for the Southeast District from the soybean growers. And that really kind of got off us off and rolling on a lot of, uh, I guess what's kind of morphed into the probably more specifically your guys' uh, uh, work, mine has kind of turned uh, harder off towards the fertilizer side, which tends towards corn. But but uh, those projects back, I don't know, what, 2000, 2001, right there, about yes. there, we got yeah. started on some of those soybean grower initiatives. Um, really kind of uh, it kicked off a lot of pretty meaningful uh, field demonstration research work over the years. Well, and that that's kind of interesting. I When I was in Becker, I was able to go back uh, to NDSU and get my master's in weed science. Um, it just, it was one of those areas uh, that had a great professor and kind of sparked that whole interest in working more with, uh, with weeds and weed issues. And I moved into Olmstead County in 1996, and you don't know what's going to happen as you move into a new area. I spent my first uh, few years really involved with the hydrologic unit area. That was a big project, uh, working on water quality issues, environmental issues, you know, manure management, nitrogen management. And Brad, I'm, I'm sure you're pretty familiar with that. Yep. And Fritz Breitenbach and Tim Weiger were involved with the HUA as well. And so again, you start making connections. Well, then I learned more about what Fritz had been working on. I had this weed science background and we just gradually started working on more projects. The soybean growers grants, kind of looking at what else we could do. And I think then that grew into, well, let's hire interns and be able to train and work and kind of expand the efforts. Um, you, you can say right place, right time, but I think there's right interest too. People that had similar interests, you had problems that you were trying to express or um, trying to evaluate and learn about. Um, and I think that's how, you know, the team and extension, which I've always been fascinated by, but we can move and redirect and we look at our resources. And when you put a creative group of people together, I'm always amazed at what can come out of that. And you can do some really great stuff. And that's been you know one of those enjoyable times and when when i was in southeast then again working with fritz i think we just clicked and we found we had some interests and my strengths his strengths worked pretty well yeah kind of a building energy so to speak mm -hmm. between the two uh so if we if we think back uh and i can maybe i'll help you brainstorm here too if we go back to 96 or in that area uh what what were some of the if we think of the kind of the timeline as as time progressed what were some of the big issues big button issues you mentioned some of the water quality stuff with manure management yep. and some of those planning things that were taking place uh what's next after that i'm i and in my mind i'm seeing this picture of fritz standing in uh a much younger fritz standing in <laughs> giant ragweed yep. over yep, his head you're right you're right i don't know if that was one of the first it was it was you know um 
you know, they first had me, as I said, it was HUA, the hydrologic unit area. Um, I know when I interviewed, they asked if I knew things about, you know, water quality issues in ag and uh, things about ag education, like ag in the classroom and working with animal rights issues and working with feedlot issues. Yeah, all and, of us were really tied down with feedlot issues in yes, the late 90s. Yeah, That was a huge part of yeah. it because of the designation. Do you want to be a delegated county? And, right. And that permitting kind of, and, mm-hmm. and then all the counties were in the process of writing feedlot ordinances and contemplating regulation and the impacts it had on the industry, yeah. And so, I mean, that did kick it off from there, but but as, you know, things were changing and you had people in place, Jack McGill and then Jim Stannard, they were kind of taking the lead on that. That allowed me to, to again, Fritz and I talked about, you know, different projects and how we could move forward on um, some land that was acquired, how we might do more herbicide and weed control work along with other pest management because he was an integrated pest management person. So corn rootworm, whatever it might be. But it did really grow from there of sitting down and having some one-on-one discussions and saying, you know, I think we could move some things forward into a more um, efficient, um, get these projects done and as well as trying to reach out to, you know, the broader audience of, of how do we answer some of these difficult problems that are starting to emerge because they were in the late 90s. And, and that was an era when uh, GMO crops first showed yep. up. I remember that you guys big. doing a lot of work with the uh, Roundup Ready Yield Drag, uh, yep. vari- a lot of variety trial work uh, uh, and that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, I, I was uh, we were more. Fo- I was still tended to be more, more focused on the manure side, but I know you guys uh, got pretty heavily involved in a lot of those issues, and we, and we still had a lot of issues at that time. I remember with uh, with uh, uh, with corn borer too. Yeah, there was corn borer, um, the corn rootworm issue. Um, we had the glyphosate, to- you know, the glyphosate gene, the tolerance in the crops, um, and you know we. We started, a couple of things were happening at that point. There was all that discussion about, well, what if we end up with Roundup-resistant weeds? You know, kind of that hypothetical. So we moved into a project. Numerous (laughs) people guaranteed me that would never happen. Never happen. (laughs) So we tried some of those those projects that said, hypothetically, if we end up with Roundup-resistant giant ragweed or water hemp so or whatever. I'm, I'm remembering this now, Lisa, because that was uh, right around 2006-ish mm-hmm. is what I'm remembering, kind of a mimicking uh, a glyphosate yes. resistance by using some u- reduced rates or non-rates to kind of see how we might go about managing when mm-hmm. when this anticipated thing would happen, this, this resistance to that group of herbicides or that herbicide, I guess. Um, and so that was kind of a, an interesting thing. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you about is, uh, were you around? So I'm thinking about atrazine now. Yeah. And, yep. and we, you know, we have BMP rates of atrazine um, for, for use. There's some concerns with uh, both ground and, and water quality right. Uh, right. issues. Uh, and so was that anywhere in your? Yes, it was. It was. It okay. was. So it was the um, looking for replacements for atrazine and trying to do that. That actually came before the glyphosate. We started to do some of these atrazine replacements. If we don't have atrazine because of the sinkholes and the setbacks, and if we can't use it, or how can we use it? What would be a replacement? So we did several years of that and worked pretty close with MDA actually to set up some good demonstrations in corn. And what we could use. Callisto was one that came, you know, that was a partner in their possibility. Um, 
Well, there was there was a lot of stuff with Alacor and, and Metulacor, too, at that point. Yep. So that was a big, that whole water quality. Again, as I came down here, we were still addressing that with the herbicides we were choosing. So it's kind of interesting. I'm sitting here with two people that have been pretty instrumental in, in working with some of these water quality issues where the the goal was not to use sort of a regulatory approach, but sort of a grower education approach BMPs. to... Hey, there's this issue out here, and what can we do to adjust our practice to try to mitigate some of these, you know, right. potential concerns as well as some of the issues that were popping up, some of the the problems. The so. funny thing that I know that the atrazine was first was that those projects, because one of the first ideas was we just ban atrazine, take it away because we can put glyphosate on every acre, corn, soybeans. We'll just put it on every acre because it's. You know, it is the best herbicide ever. And we I remember Fritz going, like, whoa, wait a minute. Resistance is a concern. This is a problem. We cannot put every acre. So you can kind of go through time and say we need replacements. We need to think about how to use atrazine um, properly so we don't cause water issues. But you cannot replace it and just say we're going to spray every acre with glyphosate in this case. And that, that was one of the proposed solutions to atrazine, and we know how that failed. It would have been a fail, yep. It would have been a big time failure. Um, I think the other thing that came in when you look at that time frame, let's back up just a little bit to 2000, 2001. Do you remember the pest that welcomed us at that time? Aphids, soybean aphid. Soybean yep. aphids. Brand new one. Yeah, I remember the, the uh, field day we had where uh, Bill Halfman uh, took us down to yep. uh, somewhere down by the Root River and, and uh, was, was marveling uh, at, at, uh, at the presence of the aphids. Was, was Bill Halfman working in Minnesota at that yes. point? Yes, yeah. okay. he was down in Houston County, and that is where we had the first field trials on soybean aphid. And there was very, there were very little guidelines as to how, what. We didn't know how often you should scout, what would be a threshold. But those trials that Fritz and Bill Halfman and I did down in that area with the help of our interns, of course, they were some of the initial work that helped set to look for that 250 threshold, aphids per plant. It was also the timing to know we need to be scouting much more frequently than once a week and some other key things that were some of the first uh, pieces of information that we put together on, on soybean aphids. Um, they're just, again, we know that you know, the aphid arrived. Uh, information was coming out of China, written in Chinese. People went to China, trying to gather lots of different information. But we worked with soybean aphids from its first finding, and we are still working on some soybean aphid projects because that insect has just, you know, there, there are some unique things about that pest that it kind of changes, and we can't quite predict everything that it's going to do. But that is, you know, from Fritz's standpoint and working with the U of M and those folks, um, we spent a lot of time working on aphid, another big project that... Well, and, and then speaking of that, you are also involved in something that never did materialize really to any extent, uh, which we all thought was going to be yep. even worse than, than aphids. Yep, and that was a soybean rust. Right. Um, it was um, going to be the end. It was going to be it. It we was going to kill us. Yep, we were yes. all going to be done. <laughs> it's going to take us in. The end of soybean production, yeah. Um, but I did have a chance. Uh, Seth Nave could not go, one of our soybean agronomists, and he let me go to Brazil with a group of about 30 farmers and ag professionals on a, on a trip about soybean rust. Learned a lot about that. And came back, and you know what it ended up is, 
you're right. We're too far north. It really never materialized. But the folks in the south don't deal with soybean aphid. So we kind of divided and said, you keep the rest. I guess we have aphids based on our climate and the nature of that. But yeah, it was a great fear because, again, we didn't know what could happen because where they have it, it's pretty devastating. Right. right. Yeah. So a little side note on your trip to Brazil, you actually ended up on a trip th- uh, with uh, what ended up being our uh, row crop pathologist, plant pathologist, Dean Malvik. So that's a yeah. small world phenomena where you were down there looking at this uh, disease and within a year, I think, after that. It was, it was happening. I was on that trip, I think it was 2005. And Dean was actually in the interviewing process during that time. And I, if I remember him sharing, he thought I knew a lot more about who was on the hiring and what was going on than I did. And he kind of quizzed me a little bit in Brazil. And um, it was like, I, I knew nothing. I knew nothing. And I think he thought I was holding cards. But I, I really wasn't involved in that hiring. But I think he came on board right early in 2006 or sometime in 2006. So that process was already in place. And so, and he is still with us. That's right. Um, all right. So the pest that never was, I'm trying to think now brainstorming here. Uh, well, then we moved forward, you know, then resistance was just continuing. So we moved from our work a lot with giant ragweed was big and we had glyphosate resistant giant ragweed, ALS resistant giant ragweed. I mean, it's just a big problem in Southeast Minnesota. We saw it kind of marching to the West. But then we started getting water hemp moving into east, and so that kind of shifted us from hardcore giant ragweed, still did a lot of that work, but then we had to move more into the the water hemp because we know with ALS-resistant, glyphosate-resistant, group 14, I mean, you know, that weed has now really taken a hold of being one of the major problems and difficult ones to work with. So we kind of divided our work into partly on ragweed partly on water hemp looking at layering concepts and and trying to you know how do we manage these weeds so it just keeps moving forward and now we're jumping forward into what about palmer amaranth sitting out there as our our, as our next concern um trying to keep it out of minnesota or not really out because we have spots but eradicate it and prevent it from really getting a foothold here so yeah from my memory one of the 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 bigger things you know a lot of that when we start talking about resistance a lot of education around using the group numbers the Mm -hmm. soa 2 and 9 and 14 and 10 things that uh when you're in in the weed science world uh you're familiar with you know and you you have a pretty good handle on but uh largely i think at the time it was kind of a, a novel concept for a lot of uh yeah farmers and I know it was one of the major changes you had made to uh, when we demonstrate uh, herbicide programs to indicate what groups are being used with each product and to give people an idea of like, well, maybe I am too reliant on group number four or nine or whatever. And and so you can kind of see that in their own operation that, you know, I'm I'm too reliant and I'm not uh, varying things up enough because if I become predictable, the mm-hmm. weeds will find a way around whatever I'm doing to manage them. Well, you helped really with one of those projects quite a bit um, as far as doing the, the, the SOA demonstrations of breaking the herbicides apart and taking a herbicide that's maybe a premix of several, but then showing what each component would do. And Ryan, I mean, that, that effort to be able to demonstrate that at our field days and people walking through and saying, well, here's what 
this part of that herbicide brings to the table. Here's what the other part. Amazing, sometimes when you put them all together, they do better. Yeah, it's something that each of the components look marginal, I would say. Some of the yes. some of the demonstration work we've done, it, it's kind of like, oh. And then you add all two or three products together and in concert, and you're like, wow, you know, it really did work. And so I think, uh, you know, that was really an opportunity even for us to learn. Mm-hmm. I, I know some of the... One of the herbicide programs we use to manage some of the agronomy area now uh, yes. uh, came out of one of those projects. We were looking at this project and you're like, you know, we uh, I forget what product Pursuit. it was. It was, but yeah, it was Pursuit was the active and I what combination product we were at. It was Optil Pro or yep, Optil Pro at that time. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah. And uh, so anyways, we, we had the three components of that product out there and it was in our water hemp block mm-hmm. where we've got, it's got prolific and terrible water hemp issues, but the, the, uh, where we had pursuit, the only weed that came up was water hemp. So initially you look at it, you're like, oh, oh yeah, predictable and can't use and it. It doesn't can't fit. use it and doesn't have any value. But then we started thinking about it and we're like, well, you know what? Water hemp was the only weed out there. We didn't have any lamb's core. We didn't have any velvet yeah. leaf. We didn't have any foxtail. So then in an applied sense, we, we decided to start tanking, tank mixing that yeah. with just some, some acres where that you need to manage uh, the weeds back. You don't want any weeds. You need to control for that. And so let's add Pursuit right. into the mix that we're using. And by God, we've had huge success with that. And I'm not, I'm not saying everyone should run out and try this today, but, uh, you know, we got to take things when you're learning those and, yeah. and try them yourself and see how they, they work out. And we certainly in that ground where we were rotating between corn and soybeans um, have had some pretty good success adding that component in in our own kind of kind of way i think um the, the part with all these years in these trials that we've done the different kinds one thing that's been unique about southeast minnesota is when we've had field days and groups come in we have a really good mix of you know about 50 percent are farmers that come through and then we have the other 50% are between industry, crop consultants, the ag professional agronomists, et cetera, co-ops that will come through and walk through those trials. And then some of them would come back and bring a group through and take another look, or they'd return themselves and take another look. And what you, what you look at over time is the discussion outside where they've actually taken those programs and, and systems that we've been able to show or demonstrate at that location and implement them and then talk about you know we've done this we've done the layering we've tried you know adding such and such and here's the success uh so it you know it does make you feel good and it and it and it should that your work has been you know um well received that the efforts paid off because it has helped demonstrate things in a small plot small research demonstration plot that people can take back out to large scale and you know have success the flip of that is we've also demonstrated things that don't work where you can have a train wreck and hopefully then they realize that as well and say don't do this at home we're showing it on small plots but you don't want this across the field either well one of the you know you mentioned the a little bit or touched on some big picture thing here which i think is important to talk about and that is the southeast minnesota uh, having kind of its own agriculture, uh, mm-hmm. uh, it's really not a uh, not either a matter of of intent or or just oversight that the university never developed a research and outreach center in the southeastern part of the state. It just sort of happened that way. 
but southeast Minnesota has its really its own characteristics as far as the soils and the types of farms and farm structure and and uh, the landscape and so forth. And so your, your work and the, your guys' work uh, out of Rochester, uh, despite the fact that it geographically isn't ex too terribly far from Wasika, really has fit a pretty important role uh, in, in southeast Minnesota that otherwise uh, would, would have uh, kind of just not have happened. Well, what you said about the soils, you know, when you go over to the S-Rock and Wasika, very different soil types, the lay of the land, um, just the whole, um, you know, water, uh, when we have the type of flooding, the drainage, um, the lust soils that we have, the wind blown, and then the sinkholes. Right, and some of the soils are shallow, too. Very shallow yeah. at times, yep. Yeah. So it poses unique challenges, problems, but a very different, uh, uh, you know, as far as some of our restrictions. Um, but I think when you, you know, when we've talked to the folks in Wasika too, um, they like having sites here in southeast moving closer because it does add a lot to their field research as well because of the different environment and the different soil types. So it's been a very good addition to all of our results. So, so another uh, success story here, Lisa. Uh, if we look, uh, this work actually culminated and ended up in a PhD as well as another colleague yeah. here that's working with us now on the crops team. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> <laughs> kind of a theme Jer uh, mm -hmm. developing here. But uh, so Jared Goplin, who, who, yes. who works as part of the, the crops team, his focus within our team has been uh, more related to, to some of the small grains as well as forage education, but also uh, weed science in some senses. And uh, he's most yeah. recently written uh, or co-written a couple of articles right. that have come out. Uh, but but Jared uh, was doing some work with uh, you and Fritz yep. and Jeff Gonzalez at the time. Uh, uh, working on uh, a site, uh, sort of a satellite site. It wasn't one of the, the basic uh, research demonstration mm -hmm. program areas. It was a, a farm that had some significant weed management challenges and uh, what was believed to be just a glyphosate resistant population of giant ragweed yeah. ended up being ALS. resistant to ALS. <laughs> and so uh, it had a whole bunch of challenges as far as uh, uh, what would fit and work and so so that kind of uh, a lot of good work got done there, you know, including uh, some some herbicide sort of trials, you know, using some of those chemistries, but also looking at, you know, things that uh, uh, people mention, but, you know, often don't have concrete examples of, uh, right. well, this, I can do this crop rotation practice and have this result I can use. Uh, uh, tillage or, or field preparation mm -hmm. to, to do some some uh, some weed management, some things that you know we all learn about, in, in, you know, in school and things. But then once you're in the real world, there there aren't as many real, visible, practical examples that you can rely on. But that work, a lot of that was was done there, and we got to see it firsthand. Of you know, right? How does tillage impact uh, this resistant population? Or the crop rate? rotation and. I think that site was unique. We had about a dozen acres or so from a, from a, a neighboring farmer friend, and he allowed us to basically take that over for several years. And this was right around 2011, 12, 13, 14, right in that time frame. Um, and it was giant ragweed, but we had Jared's work, which was very key, and he has a lot of great information. But the other part of that was we were working on the Enlist genetics. 
So we had the, the glyphosate and ALS-resistant giant ragweed population, but we were doing the whole, um, the 2,4-D technology in both corn and soybeans and doing the, some of the initial work that was done with the Enlist genetics, both the genetics themselves in the crop, but then using um, the Enlist, both Enlist with um, Liberty and Enlist Duo with the uh, glyphosate and doing a number of those herbicide trials when that was first introduced. So very early stages of it, and we have worked with it ever since then. So at least almost 10 years of working with that technology too. Another important thing to mention here, uh, that same time frame, that 2013 time frame, is when we started making some of our first uh, first adventures into using video and some of the YouTube channel stuff uh, to, right. to help uh, you know see what that might add in terms of education. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was kind of the initial thing. And Jared is actually featured on the YouTube channel yep. on a number of these uh, uh, videos related to the work that was done here. That work then kind of went on to uh, to help develop some of the online resources as well as kind of create the experience needed to uh, develop some of the things, Brad, that you've been working on with uh, Nitrogen Smart, Smart taking yep. some of those Absolutely. things online. So these all are kind of, again, back to that building of, you know, here we'll, we'll have one one example of how to, to, to start in on something and, and then see... Um, see where that ends up and what that can kind of yeah I laugh about to. Jared um, you know he started as a master's degree student that was the plan and he worked uh, with, closely with Jeff Gonzalez and they got some special funding to uh, to fund his research work but the work that was happening at that site with the giant ragweed with these rotations and what we were learning about seed bank and incorporating in-row cultivation and, and tillage as far as removing giant ragweed before you plant just all of these concepts. I remember that one day talking to Jared during the winter meeting. I said, you really need to continue and get your PhD. You're there. The work is great. There's plenty of information. I know Jeff and others were encouraging him too, but um, you know, I feel really good that, that he chose to continue with that. And you're right. It resulted in a great deal of information that we continue to use. But even this whole thing with you know, setting up the... Um, the YouTube channel and having these videos put up on our on our you know on our board, so to say, um, was some very initial work of how do we do um, get more information out to a greater population, different ways, and honestly, that's what extensions about is we're education, we're that arm from the university, and our goal is to come up with a lot of different ways that will reach many people because we all have different learning styles so whether it's in the field or you're listening or you're reading whatever it might be being creative um, and that, again that goes back to why this team has been fun to work with because there's always this creative energy that goes and says what if we tried this you know what if we demonstrated this what if we tried doing a podcast as you are now let's <laughs> give it a whirl and see what happens yeah you, yeah you think about everything and how things kind of you can't say evolve because that's kind of random, but uh, but how they build on one another, and uh, and it's uh, been interesting to kind of watch. And I think uh, another thing to mention probably is some of the the work that we started this summer with, uh, and Jared was kind of pretty instrumental in some of that. Yeah. With this, uh, we created a version of our we're calling the strategic farming, yeah. uh, the field notes program. So we we took what was kind of more of a formal. Mm -hmm 
program and that's been moving over the years through the winter series as far as what it looks like even before covid hit yep and and so it, it had kind of uh pre any of the meeting restrictions and all yep. that stuff that happened we had started down that road but then this summer it kind of evolved into kind of more of a discussion based uh i always call it a call-in show but uh where people have the chance to kind of lead the discussion as yes. a farmer as an egg professional if you want to come in and, and and create a comment or have a question uh, you can very much direct what's being talked about uh, in the program and so it's been a kind of another interesting kind of wrinkle in in how how we're continuing to kind of build and do education a little bit different over time you know and try new things as tools present themselves it's like well you're not just going to use the tool because there's a tool there it's like how do we how, do we make How might we integrate it and then kind of think about it and then use it in a way that's effective. So it's that's new delivery methods. Uh, you know, it's, it's like doing the different field trials and demonstrating. Well, I think we do the same with our delivery methods. If I go back in time, I used to have to do like a weekly radio program that we would tape ahead. We would do news columns. I know people still do those. Um, I moved into uh, the radio station said, hey, would you do a half hour live program and we're going to have people call in and ask you questions so we did kind of this question and answer live program um and once you got the hang of it it was kind of fun you know to be able to do that uh, this is similar in yeah. a way and it's it's also similar to uh when we do a presentation at a meeting oftentimes some of the best discussion and and uh, and uh, answering happens after it's done you know when you're you're eating lunch with someone or they may yeah. pull you aside on the way out the door like hey i've got this and then they they might need a follow-up too so it's been this real kind of directed almost education as far as uh, how you how you interact with folks so it's it's been interesting to kind of see that uh, evolve over time and one of the other funny you know accessibility we think of all of our you know, none of us have really got a home the same way as far as our offices because we've had to, to move and be about. Um, again, let's go back in history where you would stand on top of the car with the first cell phones and you'd kind of have to stand on the back of the pickup or somewhere high ground because I think Carlisle Holen had a, a cell phone, which was a mega box kind of thing. Yeah, I had one of those suitcase phones. Suitcase phones. <clears throat> yeah, just like the suitcase portable computers yeah. that we all yeah. started with. Although I, I, I also recall... Uh, uh, when we were in our county positions and you were, we were issued county cell phones, then, of course, you were, uh, they gave you the phone, they gave you the phone number, but, of course, more importantly, you were dependent on whoever the uh, uh, county, con county contract was yes. with, which at that time there were lots and lots of them. Yeah. And uh, getting out in western Minnesota and, and, like, literally driving around a parking lot of a truck stop holding my phone out the window waiting to see a bar on my uh, cell phone yeah. so I could make a phone call yeah. back yeah well it would be you know when you'd go out on field calls and that really people couldn't reach you unless you stopped at a phone booth someplace and called back to the office and said what's up what's going on you'd come back to your office and you'd have a stack of little notes you know, and then right. say, okay, here, and they'd try and prioritize them somewhat for you. Right. And you'd answer those and you'd call back. And, you know, then introduce into the computer generation, you get emails and you get questions that way and you'd respond as, well, now, you know, the cell phone in our back pocket, we're, call me anywhere, anytime and check in or you can get back oh, with messages. Yeah. Here's a picture of what I think is Palmer Amaranth. Yes. No, it's not Palmer. You know, <laughs> yeah, well, we got to take a look at that one. Yeah, that's kind of interesting. 
uh, something that just recently happened here. Uh, uh, we had our, our kind of a centennial ce celebration with our State Egg Educator Association. So a group of us that work, uh, you know, we collaborate with one another as a chance to visit and, and learn what each other is doing, as well as kind of showcase some of the work we've been doing, um, uh, both within our state association, as well as uh, there's a national group that we can go and kind of learn as well as showcase some of the things that, that we've been working on. Anyways, we were uh, at Boss Park, uh, it was uh, for oh, yeah. an evening meal uh, and uh, had the opportunity to sit down. We were eating supper with George Ream uh, and, uh, and uh, talked to him and, uh, and came out to the conclusion that the blank overhead was one of the oh, best educational gosh, yes. tools yes. ever. Yes. So, so anyways, uh, after eating supper with George, I've got some ideas how we might modernize the blank, blank overhead, overhead. Uh, technology and use some of that uh, as we move forward. So, so that was an interesting one of those, how that, that meeting works, camaraderie and sharing ideas. And all of a sudden he says this and I'm thinking, I think I know how we can, we can maybe futurize that. Yes, <laughs> yes. That, you know, but they, they were good meetings because you'd have, you'd, you'd invite in a group of, farmers you know as a round table and maybe bring in two specialists I think Mike Schmidt did a few of these I know Jeff Gonzalez was out um, you know but George Ream was good at this but they would come and do exactly that so they'd have the blank overhead and we'd start that round table discussion going and rather than trying to go through 40 PowerPoints to find a slide that might match, I mean, they would just draw this out and explain, okay, well, here's what's happening and this is how this works, or explain what phosphorus really does in the soil and, or how do we get, you know, runoff or what happens with denitrification. So they could sit and do that. Um, and that, those meetings were, were excellent. They were always well-received. People enjoyed coming to them and, you know, I think that's the, the as I said, you, you look for avenues to reach people to answer their questions and help them move forward in a profitable way. We want them to have success on their farms in this case. Yeah, and he did mention uh, a, a particular meeting where it sounded like him and uh, were, uh, Jeff Gonzalez were kind of taking turns. They'd get exhausted and then yes. the other one would get yes. up and, and take back <laughs> Probably over. at the Lake Park Legion. That so, might have been one of the spots. Which he also did tell a story about one of Jeff's early goals, which uh, we'll have to get Jeff back on the podcast because uh, I've got to ask him about that. Right. Yeah. yeah so. that, that, yes, that, that was a good one. <laughs> Anyways, we, uh, we won't go there today. But, uh, uh, you know, Lisa, I'm kind of thinking here full circle. Uh, one thing I do, I know we've talked about occasionally, uh, kind of going back to the beginning of the podcast, mm -hmm. um, you mentioned uh, your dad and, and yeah. think about prior to your career. So starting in agronomy, uh, it was pretty unusual for females to be involved right. in the career right. and there was general lack of women in the profession, but you very much have an interest in agronomy and uh, you know, I, you, you, love it i guess you know you that was like something you were very yeah. interested in it was exciting uh you were passionate about the 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 uh the subject matter and so um it was but it was challenging for you because you were you it was kind of a first of a kind you were kind of a pioneer of sorts uh in this whole area and you mentioned uh i know you've told me the stories before but uh and i don't need to take it too personal if you don't want to talk about it, but you mentioned your father and and yeah. uh you know kind of his inspiration I know you've told me many stories about your dad and and what he's 
you know, how he's motivated you to do different things. And so I don't know if you want to no, talk that's about that. Okay. Yeah, you know, the thing is with uh, my family. Okay, so I have two older sisters and a younger brother, and we grew up on a dairy farm. And my dad had, you know, he had a heart attack when he was 40. And at that time, um, again, you know, they treated things differently. And so he was kind of laid up for a while and, and had to work back in. But my, my dad, because of some of those issues, you know, he always included us as part of that farming operation and not in a bad way, not, not at all. We were part of that farming operation. I mean, he taught us how to melt cows and we melt cows. My brother and I got up and melt cows in the mornings, you know, and we baled hay together and we, we did stuff, fencing, whatever it might be. But, you know, all of us were included and involved in the farm and he never thought twice about it. I mean, again, two older, there's three girls and then, and then my brother, um, so we were just all involved with it. So you, you, the funny thing is you just didn't really think twice about it. Like, oh, that's odd for women to be doing this. Um, but on the farm, I think there's a lot of women and, you know, they're working with that. But move to college or you start going into that and you start to realize it's fewer and fewer. Um, my sister, Linda, who's uh, six years older than I am, I do like to share this, is that she went to John Marshall. We went to Rochester School. But... Uh, she too had a real big interest in ag and she went into animal science and there were m few more women in animal science but when she was in John Marshall she wanted to be part of FFA she couldn't be in FFA it wasn't allowed to have women in FFA and for her to be able to join FFA her her advisor made her take a tool test so he laid a bunch of farm tools out and said you need to name all of these tools for me and, and she could because we'd been helping my dad. We knew what they were. And so they let her be part of the FFA and John Marshall. But she could not compete in any of the state contests because she was a woman that's and they weren't allowed. That's just crazy. I mean, that just. I mean, it, it is. It, it, see, I mean, it, it, it just that, that feels like that's something that should have been like 80 years ago, you know. Yeah. 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 So, you know, I sometimes forget about that. But, you know, here's my sister. She's instrumental. We were doing this. Didn't really think twice. She continued on and has a master's in ruminant nutrition. And, you know, she has lots of stories, too. But so she was kind of a mentor, too. You watch this. I went to the um, when I transferred up to the U, my sister was in her master's program there, you know, just the way the timing worked. And so we were kind of both at the U together. So that was really helpful. Uh, and there were other women in the agronomy program at that time, and a number of them, you know, have careers. But when I went to Becker County, you know, um, I should back. My dad was helpful in getting me into the agronomy field. He was, he was, he just said, "Here's a good field for you. You should continue because you love agriculture, and we're doing these things." Um, but when I moved to Becker County, I honestly was stupid. I did not realize there really were no women in this field. I mean, it was just like foreign. But I learned very quickly that you are different what are you doing up here do you realize they hired a woman oh for goodness sakes why would they ever hire a woman to do this i mean it was just and all of a sudden you didn't fit you were in wrong places um you didn't know what to do i mean you can kind of think and understand i mean even in farm families i felt you know so you have a husband and wife and sometimes the wives felt uncomfortable with you because there weren't women working in this field. You're on the farm. But my, my dad was so helpful. I would call him a lot of nights, and some nights I'd have tears in my eyes because I'm going, like, I don't know how to deal with this. But he would give me ideas. He'd say, well, try this. 
try this approach or say this or do this or, you know, it's kind of the you catch more flies with honey than <laughs> vinegar. Um, but he gave me a lot of good ideas of how to just kind of make the next step. He goes, hang in there, hang in there. And then, you know, there were the few farmers uh, like George Scherzer and Lowell Jorgensen, I, those names because we're still friends. But they were the ones that gave you the first foot. Let's say, let's do a field. You know, let's do a trial out here and have a field day. And, you know, it just takes time. O and Open the door. Oh, and, open and, the door. And it, it changed slowly at first. I know when I started in, in 94, it was just you and Cindy, I think. I think so, yeah. We're probably the only two. But uh, then, then, the, then, kind of the floodgates open. I mean, now, by the time, by the end of your career, I haven't done the math because I don't care a lot. But I think it's about fifty-fifty. Yeah, I, I think for I, our regional I, educators, yeah. when you go into, well, um, it depends on how far you want to expand it. But like in, you know, in in our group on the water quality oh, sure. side, I mean, we're there's more women than than men, and we're so scientists working in crops, a lot of us, and so forth. And so, yeah. It's, uh, you know, and, and then um, if you, you know, expand it to the, the animal science folks and the, and the, and uh, the horticulture and that yes. whole group, I think, you know, on, the, on our whole ag side, uh, yeah, in fact, there, there maybe there's more women than men even right now. And, and you but, know, it goes to what you said, Ryan. I mean, there's the passion and an interest. Um, I did this because I, I like, you know, I liked being on the farm. Taking over the farm really wasn't an option at that stage. But I enjoy, you know, agronomy and ag production and working on the farm. And my husband and I still farm. I mean, I, that's just what I like. So going into this field, um, uh, you know, at the time, too, I had an opportunity to go to Iowa State to work in forages at a research farm or go into extension. And, you know, my dad said, well, why don't you just give extension a try? It sounds like it might be kind of a fun place to go. Yeah, encouraging people to follow their interests. And it took a yes. couple of generations to kind of get to the point where regardless of, of gender you can pursue those things and work hard at them and, exactly. and so it's it's been important that you were there but uh you know fast forward i was just talking to a farmer friend the other day and uh he was indicating that his daughter uh is uh, uh competitive trap shooting with the high school ah, so yes. another you know like we didn't think about it and it's like well why not if you have that passion and you're willing just like anyone, I mean, you're willing to educate yourself, go through the training. You have certain areas of interest and expertise. Um, I think the fun part of what we've done over the years here in, in Olmsted County is having so many interns, college interns, many of them young women, not all in agriculture, but I think just the opportunity to have this nice mix. And again, you know, many days you don't even think twice until somebody comes back later and says, Oh, I just, you were so helpful for me to, because I saw you could do it, or you did it. And it, it, it's rewarding, I know. It I, is. There's, there's, a, there's a couple of individuals who I know, I think, trace their career back to things that I did or worked with and so forth. It's, it, yeah. it, is, it is rewarding. Yeah. I, they, you know, even, yeah. you know, the male-female thing was... You know, I saw you could do it, so it was like, well, why can't I do this? And right. um, not making a huge, really not making a huge issue over it, but just be competent, do what you enjoy, find those passions that you have, and uh, move forward. And that's kind of where my dad always said, just go for it. You can do it, can't you? Yeah. Well, then just do it and don't worry about it. Good advice, good advice. Uh, 
So, uh, you know, and that brings up, I think we might have to get Teresa reps. Yes. I, I knew her as yes. Teresa too. Maybe we'll have to get her yeah. on the podcast, but anything else you guys want to chat about today? I, you know, I've been with extension, it's over 40 years, you know, and I've, I've, I will say there's ups and downs, but I've re really enjoyed, as I said, that whole working together as a team, getting to work with a lot of good people, sharing those ideas, always making it a better, you know, what can we do differently? I, I've, I've shared this with a few people. I said, you know, don't be afraid to carve some niches. If you see some cool idea and yet you're not really getting directive from above, don't worry about directives from above always. You know, use some creative energy and start to see and test those waters. I think that's what the U of M extension allows us to do is be very creative and keep testing those waters for better way to deliver information. So that's why I'm still keeping my foot in the door a little bit. Want to hang on and make sure things keep going. But, um, you know, it's, 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 as I said, it's been a very good career for me. All right. Well, thanks, Lisa. It's been a pleasure visiting today and get you on the podcast. Thank and, you. Uh, and uh, anything else? Otherwise, no. no I, I, I echo what you said, Ryan. It's it's really been a pleasure, and I guess I can look forward to continuing to work <laughs> with you. What, uh, however much longer uh, you choose to stay involved. All right. Well, with that, I want to thank all the listeners for listening to another installment of the Gopher Coffee Shop podcast. <laughs>